0: this is part two of our Bible study on John chapter 6. In the first part, we looked at the opening two miracles, multiplication of the loaves and the fish and the walking on the water, and we began to explore the Eucharistic discourse of Jesus. It's in two parts, as we know. The first part has to do with revelation and faith, God's wisdom. Let's turn to verse 27, and we'll just pick it up there, just for review. Jesus says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him has God the Father set His seal. Now, in the Old Testament, there are many references to wisdom and revelation being expressed as a kind of food and nourishment that we are to partake in. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Turn to Proverbs chapter nine, starting at verse one. We'll just read the first few verses which set it out pretty clearly. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up her seven columns. She has dressed her meat, mixed her wine. Yes, she has spread her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the heights out over the city that whoever is simple turn in here to him who lacks understanding. I say, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness that you may live. Advance in the way of understanding. There we have wisdom of God, which is his revelation, expressed as a kind of banquet that we're all invited to. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55, starting at verse 1. All who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come, receive grain and eat. Come without paying and without cost, drink wine and milk. Why spend your money for that which is not bread, your wages for what fails to satisfy. Heed me and you shall eat well. You shall delight in rich fare, Again, speaking of God's revelation, his wisdom. It's like a banquet where we're being invited to. Well, there's many, many passages, but just turn to Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet to my tongue is your promise, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I gain insight, therefore I hate all false ways. This could be multiplied many times. Remember, Jeremiah the prophet said, when I found your words, I devoured them and they became my joy and the happiness of my heart. That's Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. So that whole theme in the Old Testament is being picked up here by Jesus in the first part of the discourse. He's saying, I now am that food that needs to be eaten because I'm the word of God in the flesh as well. He says you must have faith, and he repeats that several times in the first part of that discourse. At least three times he says, You must believe in what is being revealed, in what I have to teach. And that's how we are nourished. We're to take the word of God in us as a banquet and assimilate it so that it's part of us. Yes. Is that why in the woman in the well he told his apostles the there is food you don't know of and rice. Yes. Exactly. And then we've already looked at Isaiah chapter 25, which is the great Messianic banquet prophecy, where God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, come, everyone, you're being invited to this holy mountain, where there will be rich foods and fine wines, all sin will be forgiven, all tears will be wiped away. It's spoken in terms of a sacrifice, because it's the fat of the meat and the finest of wines that's what was used in the temple in the Old Testament sacrifices and the people will say this is who we hoped for this is our God in whom we hoped. That's a beautiful passage in the Messianic banquet prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25. It's meant for everyone not just the Jews that's what Jesus is picking up in John chapter 6 with the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. In fact, there's also another miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish meant for the Gentiles. It was performed in Gentile territory and that's in Matthew chapter 15 repeated in Mark chapter 8. So we've got two separate miracles of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. They're slightly different. For the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 15, there's 4,000 men present with seven loaves and then seven baskets left over it's in the same chapter in Matthew chapter 15 where that Gentile woman comes to Jesus Remember, she wants her daughter healed who's demon-possessed she's a Canaanite and Jesus tries to test her faith as an example to the Apostles and he says well I've come only to feed first of all the children of Israel but she persists Jesus says well I'm not going to take the bread and throw it to the dogs? And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps which fall from the master's table. In that same chapter, we have this great miracle of the multiplication of the seven loaves with 4,000 present in Gentile territory. That's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 25 where not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, all people are invited to this great banquet. In fact, the 12 baskets left over in John chapter 6 represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Scholars say the seven baskets left over represent the seven Gentile nations in Canaan. If you look back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see that. In other words, all people are invited to this banquet, this messianic banquet, which is exactly what's happening here as a prefigurement in John chapter 6. This multiplication of the loaves and fish is a banquet, but it's pointing forward to the Last Supper, which is the Messianic banquet on earth, because that's where Jesus will take bread and wine and not just multiply it for a few, but for all time. And that's the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which is on earth, the Messianic banquet. And that's why the Mass is broken up into the Liturgy of the Word, where we have the Wisdom of God from the Old Testament, and we have the Liturgy of the Eucharist, both halves of that Eucharistic Discourse in John chapter 6, right at the Mass. The Word and the Eucharist, that makes the night Yes. I would also add, it's give us this day our physical bread that we need to eat to survive. There's also that aspect. But primarily it's, yes, give us this day our daily bread, which is the wisdom of God, and it's the super substantial bread. The daily bread is actually above nature bread, which is Christ, yes. He's giving us both our spiritual and our physical needs. He's suggesting both. He is suggesting both our physical and spiritual needs be satisfied, right in the heart of the only prayer Jesus taught, which is why we say the Our Father at Mass. Yes. Thy kingdom, come. thy kingdom come, which is one of the early petitions in the Our Father, means that God's will, because that's what's happening in heaven, God's will is being fully lived out by the saints. Let your kingdom, what's happening now in heaven, come down to earth now. May we participate more fully in your kingdom here on earth, is what that petition means. Back to John chapter 6, we're starting in verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. If we just go through that first half of the discourse, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So he's combining faith with wisdom of God. And that's a preparation because there's no sense Jesus instituting the sacrament of the Eucharist if there's no faith. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So there's another reference to faith. Down to verse forty. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So that first part of the discourse is definitely emphasizing faith the Jews start to murmur in verse 41 again we went through this last time Jesus answered them do not murmur among yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last days so this is the work of the father and what we're called to do is yield to God's work it's not our work it's not our initiative it's God who is working in us and we're called to yield and to have faith Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's the end of the first part of the discourse. It ends at verse 47. Verse 48 now begins the second part of the discourse, which is now going to be emphasizing the Eucharist. The first part is the sapiential feeding, the feeding of wisdom by faith. The second part of the discourse is the sacramental feeding, of Jesus' actual body and blood. And that begins in verse 48. That's I think where we left off. We'll now get into the text in more detail. I just wanted to go through the summary of the first part just to situate ourselves in this discourse. Sapiential means wisdom, feeding, as opposed to the sacramental feeding in the second part of the discourse. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. Jesus is referring back to the manna of the Old Testament. The manna of the Old Testament was a prefiguring of the Eucharist. It was a foreshadowing, a type, because typology is crucial for Catholic understanding of the Scriptures. The manna was a type prefiguring, foreshadowing of the Eucharist, which means that since the manna was actually real, bread come down from heaven, then Jesus' use of this as a type means that the Eucharist cannot be symbolic, because it would be lower than the manna. The manna was real, which means the Eucharist has to be not symbolic, but real, and greater than the Manna. That's the whole meaning behind typology. The type is fulfilled in the reality. Manna in itself was not symbolic. It actually was food, which means the Eucharist is food, but not just ordinary food as Jesus is pointing out, but food for eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread which I shall give, for the life of the world is my flesh. Living bread has a reference to, as we mentioned last time, the tree of life in the garden. That whoever eats of the tree of life will never die. That's clearly set out in the Genesis text. Here Jesus is saying, Well, I am the living bread, which I shall give. So He will give it in the future. He's not giving it now in the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. But that's a type, again, prefiguring of the Last Supper. And that bread, which Jesus will change into his body and blood, is the fulfillment of the types. Since we're talking about typology, let's just give you another type in the Old Testament. Typology is how you understand the Old Testament in terms of being fulfilled in the New. The Old Testament contains all kinds of these foreshadowings, prefigurings, or types of what will be fulfilled in the New Testament. um, Baptism, for example. Or the sacrifice of um, Abraham? Yeah, that's where we're going. Oh, that's where we're going. going. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 14, the famous incident of Melchizedek. If you remember the story, Abraham has a nephew named Lot. And Lot somehow gets captured, his whole family and all his possessions. He gets captured by these five foreign kings and they take them all away. Abraham, with his uncle, goes and rescues him. He defeats those five kings and brings back Lot, his nephew, with all of his family, children and wives and possessions. And on the way back, this mysterious figure by the name of melchizedek comes out and offers a sacrifice of praise he's a priest king he's got that dual character it's the first time that a priest is mentioned in the bible and what's he doing he's bringing out bread and wine and offering it as a sacrifice of praise now that's curious the first time a priest is mentioned in the bible he brings out bread and wine offers it as a sacrifice of praise and then he blesses Abraham, which is a priestly action. What does Abraham do? He gives him a tithe. A, what? a tithe, 10%. That's the beginning of the whole Old Testament notion of tithing. This specific priestly activity is a sacrifice. And If you turn to Psalm 110, verse 4, that says that the future Messiah will be a priest forever, according to the type or order of Melchizedek. It says it right there in the psalm. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament expands on that in chapters 5 and 7, specifically confirms Jesus as the eternal priest-king and says he is the perfect fulfillment of Melchizedek's priesthood. What does Jesus do? He brings out bread and wine and offers it in the form of a sacrifice and his body and blood on the cross. So, that priest? Not Melchizedek. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, was he a priest and king of what? It's very mysterious because there's no genealogy for him. He comes out of nowhere yeah. and that's very deliberate. And it disappears into nowhere. And disappears without any idea of his whereabouts. But that is a kind of typology of Christ who comes to us not out of any human genealogy. But we know where he came from. Well, he came from heaven. Yeah. Right. But, but we don't know where they come. Melchizedek, though, is this preparation, this foreshadowing of the true priest who will come from heaven. But the fact that he has no history, no ancestors, means that he has this eternal character about him. No beginning, no ending. The letter to the Hebrews takes advantage of that and says that's a type. And let me tell you how it's fulfilled. It just explains it. If you read chapters five and seven, it's very well set out in detail by that. In fact, Hebrews is actually a homily. The letter to the Hebrews is a homily. That's how scholars treat particular genre. It's a homily based on these Old Testament preparations. And in fact, it goes through systematically one after another. It talks about Moses, but Christ is the fulfillment of Moses talks about the priesthood. Christ is the eternal high priest. The whole purpose of Hebrews is to say Christ is God, the high priest, and he's come to offer the perfect sacrifice, and we're called to partake in it. And there's just hints in there, too, of the holy sacrifice of the mass, too. Right. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's taking advantage of that typology. He's prefiguring types of the Old Testament and saying, here's how they're fulfilled now in Christ. But that's not all, because in the Catechism, this is paragraph 1333, let me quote it, the Church sees in the gesture of the priest King Melchizedek, who brought out bread and wine, a prefiguring of her own offering. But even more than that, in the first Eucharistic prayer, which we don't hear that often, because it's the longest. It directly links the Mass of today with the sacrifice of Melchizedek. The priest at Mass quoting again from the first Eucharistic prayer says, look with favor on these offerings, that is bread and wine, and accept them as you once accepted the bread and wine offered by your priest Melchizedek. That's a quote right from the Eucharistic prayer. So right away in the very first book of the Bible, we have this preparation for the Eucharist under the aspect of sacrifice. Typology as well? Typology is all over the Bible. I mean, look at baptism, for example. The crossing of Israel through the Red Sea is a symbol of typology, a preparation for baptism. And in fact, St. Peter says that in his first letter. He refers back to that and says, that's baptism, which now saves you, just as the Israelites were saved through the waters of the Red Sea, and what happened to the enemies, which were the Egyptian army, which symbolizes sin, washed away. So typology is crucial if you want to understand the Bible. Let's go back to John chapter 6, verse 53. Now, what's happening here is the Jews who are hearing this, the crowds who are hearing this discourse, first of all, they thought, okay, Jesus, you're speaking symbolically, I get it. That's the first part of the discourse, talking about the wisdom, eating, assimilating and making it your own. But then the whole dialogue changes in that second part. And now they're beginning to think, I don't like how you're speaking, Jesus, because you're speaking literally. And how can you do that? It's forbidden for Jews to drink blood. That's what they are beginning to dispute. In verse 53, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus had the perfect opportunity right there to say, you're misunderstanding me. I am speaking symbolically. So don't murmur. But he doesn't. He actually ratchets up The reality, he makes it more emphatic, it's the starkest realism he could possibly speak because he takes what is anathema to the Jews, drinking blood, and he says, no, you have to drink my blood, and he says, truly, truly, this is not a symbol, it's not a figure, he's moving into this sacramental feeding, which we now know as the mass. In Leviticus chapter 17, we have that famous prohibition of drinking blood, but it's also can be found way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. All over the place in the Old Testament, there is prohibitions of drinking blood. And what does Jesus say? You must drink my blood. If you don't, you have no life in you. Then, just to make matters more clear, if there could ever be a greater realism, he changes the verb of eating, because in the first part of the discourse in the beginning of the second, he was using it in terms of just ordinary eating, which could mean symbolically eating like wisdom of God. But then he changes the verb in verse 53 and 54 and 55 to a verb which means not just symbolic, but chew and gnaw. It's very, very visceral, very carnal. It's the Greek verb trogo, T-R-O-G-O, which is almost like an animal type, how the animal eats, just like munches, gnaws, terrors. He's using that particular verb to make it clear he's not speaking symbolically. You don't see it in the English, but it is in the Greek, and scholars all say this, Protestants, Catholics like agreed that he changes the verb deliberately changes the verb verse 54 he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is food indeed not in figure or in symbol but indeed and then it gets even more radical in verse 56 he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him As I mentioned last time, that word abide is a covenantal term. In a covenant, it's not like a contract where you have two parties and you make a deal and if one breaches it, you sue them. Covenant means a marriage. It means a union. And what Jesus is saying is that in the Eucharist, we become one with him. We get this in John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if the branch does not abide in the vine, it's dead and should be cut off. It cannot bear fruit. That's the type of reality the Eucharist is, that abiding is this mutual indwelling. Which is why we call the Eucharist Holy Communion. Not just between us and God, but since we're all receiving the same Christ, we are in communion with each other. Truly. Which is why we really are one body. He said has have to have a lot of faith in him, isn't he? That's why the first part of that discourse is all about faith. Because without faith, that second part will never be accepted. And that's why he began even before the faith aspect with those two miracles. So that we're actually understanding he can create the universe out of nothing. If he can do that, he can certainly change bread and wine into his body and blood. yes he's asking a lot of faith and that's why today not many people believe what Jesus is saying here even among Catholics. Turn to one Corinthians chapters 10 verse 16 just on this aspect of abiding and communion. This is St. Paul now speaking about the Eucharist. It's spousal language. It's uh, nuptial. Which brings the whole Old Testament typology right to fulfillment. All those mentions in the Old Testament about God wanting to marry his people. He's the bridegroom. Israel is the bride. Crystallized right here. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread." Wow. So the real presence is being emphasized and the communion with Christ is being emphasized and with each other. This is Paul's answer to the many divisions that are happening in his church in Corinth Remember the beginning of that letter, he says, well, some of you are following Paul and some Cephas and some Apollos, and you're all divided. We're all following Christ. And now he makes it very specific in chapter 10 about the Eucharist. We're all receiving the same Christ. So how can we be divided? So this is sort of the capstone of his letter right here in chapter 10. Unity. Unity, yeah. Holy Communion. St. Peter talks about that in his second letter where he says we are being divinized. We are partaking in the divine nature. He says that. We are partaking in the divine nature. We are being made holy. And it's right here in the Eucharist. So back to chapter 6, verse 57. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father... Now here he's referring back to chapter 5 in John's Gospel, verse 26, where he said very clearly, and he spent the entire chapter building up to this point, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That's what Jesus is referring to now in chapter 6. But now Jesus in the discourse is saying in verse 57 of chapter 6, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Jesus has life in himself because he's been given that by the Father. So the Trinity is being invoked right here in the midst of this discourse. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died, the manna, he who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Jesus repeats this six, seven times, the realism of it, changes the bird to eat and continues to be more emphatic as he is speaking, so that there's no possible way of interpreting this as symbolic. Well, let's see how the disciples respond. In verse 60, many of the disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. So they get that he's speaking literally. It's a hard saying, and who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, do you take offense at this? Verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, why does he bring in the ascension here? Two reasons. One, he's basically saying, look, if you don't believe in the incarnation, I was sent by the Father, born of a virgin, If you can't believe that. And you can't believe in this Eucharist, you will not believe in my ascension. But also, he's invoking the ascension to quell possible objection that this is nothing but cannibalism. How can we eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood? But Jesus talks about the ascension because, as we mentioned last time, the Eucharist is partaking in the risen, glorified body and blood of Christ that can be present everywhere at the same time. That's not dead flesh. It's the glorified body of Christ. And that happens with the ascension. Jesus rises from the dead with a glorified body, ascends into heaven, and from there, the sacraments are initiated, including the Eucharist. Because now Christ has a glorified body. It's living. Verse 63, It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. Now here... Some non-Catholics may think, well, aha, the flesh is of no avail. He's not speaking literally, speaking symbolically, he's speaking spiritually. It's the Spirit that gives life. That's the typical argument you'll hear in response to this. But notice, Jesus says, it is the Spirit, first of all, that gives life. And you cannot equate Spirit with metaphor or symbolism because the Holy Spirit is as real if not more real, than any other literal material aspect of nature. It's reality. The Spirit is reality. It's not symbolic. So you can't do that. But Jesus says that the flesh is of no avail. He doesn't say my flesh is of no avail. He says the flesh. And throughout the entire New Testament, St. Paul emphasizes this again and again and again. The flesh represents fallen human nature. Disordered passions—all of that is the flesh. There's many, many passages we could go through, but let's just go through a couple of them. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41 says, "The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The fallen human nature is weak." Would that be our like sin? Yeah, that's our fallen sinful nature. That's the flesh. Paul says this again and again. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are plain. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness. Licentiousness? Yeah. It's just a kind of carnal nature of throwing everything to the wind and I'm bound by nothing. Oh. Paul says, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's opposing the flesh, which is the fallen nature of man. Yes, Bill? On um, last Wednesday, mass, there's uh, people of the flesh the not ready to just fall milk. No. Well, that's a similar thing. We are still of the flesh. We haven't yet accepted by faith God's grace and been transformed which is the Catholic understanding of justification and salvation. In baptism, we're given the Spirit, and we are internally renewed and given a new heart. As Jeremiah says in the day of the Messiah, your stony hearts will be replaced by a new heart and a new spirit. That's the regeneration that comes through baptism and faith. But before that, we're still of the flesh. And even after that, we can still have very fallen tendencies. But here's one we just went over. Let's go back to chapter 3, John 3, verse 6, where that famous incident with Nicodemus. And what does Jesus say? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's the notion of the flesh. And it's all over the New Testament, so I won't multiply, well, let me just give you one more Romans chapter 7 verses 5 to 6 while we were living in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death so in John chapter 6 when Jesus says it is the spirit that gives life the flesh is of no avail he's referring to our fallen nature he's not referring to his own flesh because Nobody would say that Jesus' flesh is of no avail because it bought our redemption. It's his body, the blood that was shed on the cross, that redeemed us. So obviously, you can't say that toward Jesus. His flesh is certainly of great avail. All right, so it's 5 to 11. Let's take a break.